calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is Take 15. My guest today is an expert at simplifying the complex world of money, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Dr. Brian Portnoy is Head of Education at Magnetar Capital. He's a CFA charter holder and the author of two books, The Investor's Paradox and The Geometry of Wealth. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for being here today. Um, let's start with your second book, The Geometry of Wealth, which you said is a prequel to The Investor's Paradox. So why did you write the book? And for those of us who can't see the title or the front cover, mm -hmm. why the shapes? Right. Why the prequel? Well, so I had written a book uh, a few years ago called The Investor's Paradox, which was you know straight down the middle investment book. How do you make better decisions about hedge funds and mutual funds and, and those sorts of things. I wrapped up that project and thought, well, something's missing. Like I, I, was, I was so in the weeds on thinking about making good investment decisions. And I thought, well, you know, who, who really cares? Like what, what's the context here? And I began to think about that professionally. And I also began to think about that personally with uh, you know, kids that are growing up and thinking about what they're gonna be doing in the world. So I began to think more broadly about, well, you know, uh, uh, way above this level of investment decision-making, how does money figure into a happy life? Where, where does money figure into leading a meaningful life? And so I, um, I got the idea for the geometry of wealth and, and, and the shapes, the circle, the triangle, and the square are just my shorthand kind of mental models for the things that I think go into um, the path toward true wealth. I think about true wealth in terms of the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. And the three steps are defining your purpose, then setting your broad you know, financial priorities. And then I think about in the book, you know, a few, four in particular, um, uh, specific decisions that people need to make with regard to their investments and portfolios and such. So it goes from very big picture mm -hmm. to, to, to smaller picture. Okay. And we want to use shapes to help just summarize, create uh, something visual that people can latch on to. So if you remember circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions, you kind of don't even need to read the book. <laughs> Is there a reason why purpose is in a circle? Does one kind of never quite find a purpose? Is it going round and round and round and round? Yeah, it's a round world. I think we're always figuring it out. Um, I, I, I think that uh, uh, at every stage of life, you, you think about what you're doing, but also who, who you are in a certain way. And then you blink your eyes and it's five or 10 years later and you're thinking about it a little bit differently. I think one of the... Uh, more claustrophobic elements of financial planning and finance more generally is that it's often boiled down to, well, you want more than you used to have. Um, and well, 10's better than eight and 15's better than 10. And, and that's the path that you're on. But we know in the real world, in, in, in our day-to-day -day lives, what's really important to us and who we think we are, that's, that, that, that's changing. And so the circle just represents the fact that 
we're, we're always figuring it out. Not every moment of every day, but periodically. I've heard you say that a lot of the book is just you listening to what people are worried about. So what is keeping advisors and clients up at night? And then I guess a follow-up question is what's keeping you up at night? <laughs> so what's keeping clients and advisors up at night is how to navigate just an incredibly noisy world. And I don't mean just capital markets. Yes, capital markets are massive stocks and bonds and commodities and currencies and all this kind of stuff. You know, we've got Bloomberg terminals and financial television and, and you know, our smartphones now have sort of infinite amount of data basically on that. But then there's an even broader context, which is that um, we just have so much input into our lives in terms of social media, in terms of information. We've never had more choice at any point before in recorded human history, not just in money and finance, but in education and healthcare and consumption and you, you name it. I think what clients and advisors are focused on is the fact that in that overwhelming scenario, it's hard to make decisions. And the big question of, am I gonna be okay, um, is gets kind of hard to focus on when you've got so much noise. So separating noise from signal is something that, whether they, you know, most won't put it that way, but really that's what many clients and advisors are focused on. And, and I'm just a regular guy thinking through the same things. You know, I've got aging parents and growing kids and, my wife and I are sandwiched in the middle and, you know, we think about well, all these decisions that we need to make, um, you know, many of them financially related. It's sort of hard to get away from money world, earning, saving, spending, uh, investing. There's so many different implications of money in our lives, not just analytically, but emotionally. So I wanted to write a book that, you know, frankly, helped me sort through the things that I was thinking about uh, in, in, in terms of providing better lives for the, for the people I love. So what have you done personally to separate the, the noise from the signal in your life? Well, uh, first and foremost, I wrote a book <laughs> that articulated what it is that um, I, I think is the right way to proceed. Um, you know, th th there's a variety of things. A lot of them just sort of small, but they add up. Um, you know, uh, paying less and less attention to the markets on a day-to-day -day basis has been um, uh, a good thing. Um, they talk about noise versus signal, yeah. just sort of turning on the TV or opening the paper or clicking on a website and seeing all of the, the, the information, looking at your investments. So I'm, I'm pretty disciplined now versus 10, let alone 20 years ago, of actually wanting to know less. So having less, you know, making, making, making it so that I can have less information means that I can make better decisions. That, 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 that's probably one of the, one of the big things. And then, you know, also just thinking a little bit systematically about what goes into leading a, 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 a meaningful life. I mean, there's just so much literature and religion and philosophy and anthropology and, 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 and psychology written about that. Understanding in the context of, of underwriting a meaningful life as the source of true wealth, um, understanding those deeper sources of contentment is, is something that I've put a fair amount of time into. Well, that's actually a great segue because I wanted to ask you about leading a more meaningful life. Yeah. And you've identified what you call the four C's. Mm -hmm. So walk us through those four C's. Yeah, so the four C's are uh, connection, control, competence, and context. And the idea was for me uh, to, you know, if what I wanted to do was say, you know what, the big questions we're asking are, am I gonna be okay? How do I lead a meaningful life? Um, well, what's, what, what are the ingredients to that? 
we all live in the world. We all think about these things um, from, from from multiple multiple perspectives. I, I wanted to plant a, a flag in the ground and say, hey, I, here's here's four things that I think kind of summarize a, a lot of what I've seen. So uh, connection is just the idea, super powerful, uh, based on evolution and genetics, that we're social creatures, that that sense of belonging is unbelievably meaningful to us. And when we don't have it, um, we don't feel very good about our lives, that um, you know, there's an epidemic of loneliness um, that is happening, especially in, in American society. And it's quite sad to watch that you know, even when we've got technology, especially social media, that creates connections between people, at least from a raw digital point of view, that at the same time, you have people feel more and more isolated from each other. So that sense of belonging or connection is huge. Control is the second thing that I uh, think about, which is autonomy. You have a sense of uh, control over where your life's going to go. Liberty, independence, freedom, opportunity, choice. We see these as really good things because when you don't have them, you, 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 feel, um, you feel sad. You feel like you're not able to do what you want to do. Competence, um, you know, uh, some might call it mastery. Being really good at something that you care about. Mm-hmm. Being good at your job, having a vocation or a hobby or some other skill or craft that you can really put your heart and soul into. Um, work is a deep source of identity for us. Uh, and it's um, something that, um, considering the technology is disrupting labor markets, automation and robots and stuff, I think it's a, a topic that's going to be uh, increasingly controversial uh, in the years to come. And then the fourth C is context, um, which is just my shorthand for you know living um, uh, in, in the context of something bigger than yourself. It could be religion, it could be nationalism or patriotism, it could be your sports team. But having that sense of you know connection to things outside of yourself, ironically, uh, the less you focus on yourself and feed your ego, the healthier yourself and ego are, and uh, people should kind of keep that in mind. So those four C's, connection, control, competence, and context, I, I think that's one mental model to allow us to think through what it means to underwrite those, those, those concepts. So we're having this conversation at a wealth management conference. Yeah. So um, help uh, explain how advisors can talk to their clients about these important touchstones. Yeah, I think the first thing is to have the right vocabulary and the right concept. So one of the reasons for writing the geometry of wealth was to uh, at least offer up you know, a framework that people could use. They can modify it to their needs. But you know, in, in my career, especially over the last five years or so, spent a lot of time with financial advisors and their clients dealing with the general topic of behavioral coaching, behavioral finance, sort of the emotional element of um, making good decisions about our money lives. Within the context of trying to uh, achieve uh, these broader goals for clients, um, advisors need to be prepared to have the conversation. I think the way historically the default conversation or script between client advisor has gone is really focused on the portfolio. It's on investing, it's on markets. And I think advisors have the opportunity, and some already do, many already do a fantastic job at this, but there's plenty of room for improvement and, and growth uh, uh, along this metric, it is to broaden the conversation, not just to portfolios and investing, and not even just to the financial planning level where you're dealing with taxes and estates and insurance and trusts and things like that. But even beyond that, that broader sense of helping your clients navigate this noisy, and complicated and stressful world uh, because money is such an emotional lightning rod 
and it's really connected to almost every part of our experience here in the world. Advisors have this amazing opportunity to just generally provide for their clients or help their clients lead just a much more fulfilling life. You often talk about the adaptive advisor, something yeah. I heard you say today as well, the triple A advisor. Yeah. Just walk us through that really briefly. Yeah. So, you know, triple A for me, uh, aspirational, uh, adaptive and authentic. Uh, when I think about where this industry is going and I think of there being over the last 30 to 40 years, this very broad pivot from what I call selling, or from, from selling to solving, from brokerage to goals-based wealth management. Uh, and like any historical transition, it's sloppy and there's feedback loops. But I think that's the general. Um, uh, I, I think that's the the the, the general thing. Um, um, I think being aspirational, meaning that you want to grow your business uh, and not just uh, you know sort of work with legacy clients. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to, but it, you know I think that's critically important. Adaptive, uh, you know, uh, critically important, uh, precisely because you need to roll with the punches. We can't predict what's going to come next. Yeah. And then authenticity, really, really important. Being the best version of yourself. So I'm talking about certain concepts here um, related to behavioral finance and social psychology. Not every advisor, and certainly not every client, is going to want to get into this. That might not be what's appropriate for them. So I think finding authenticity making sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of what they're there for is critically important. So I love what you brought up today in the presentation. You talked about going to um, have discussions with advisors about their hour-long client meetings mm -hmm. and how they, what they bring up in the beginning versus what they bring up at the end. Just walk us through, so for those of us who, or who weren't there this morning, that's a, how to invert that first eight to 10 minutes of a conversation. Yeah, so you know, advisors meet with their clients once or twice a year, have kind of a big sit down or phone call or Skype. And uh, when I just op ask open-ended questions to advisors, hey, what, what do you talk about? Most of the time the answer is, well, you know, a little overview of the market, uh, the economy, and then we kind of get into uh, the, the, the plan and then you know, um, into, in, into the portfolio. And the perspective I've kind of brought to that, and where I've talked to many advisors about it, is to say, well, you know, you have one hour every six months, let's say, for semi-annual review. And of that one hour, you know, um, you know they can't be paying attention equally across the entire thing. They're going to be paying attention, you know, they're going to be especially uh, attuned in the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And you're taking that prime time where you've really got their attention and what you're implicitly doing is saying, you know, my main expertise is as uh, economist and market expert. And then you get into the stuff that they actually care about. Most clients, most of the time, they feel like they're, it's a, almost theater. Like there's a script and they're playing a part where the advisor talks about the market and they act like they understand it or they're, at least they're interested in it. And we know in many cases that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I really like the idea of just flipping the script. Well, why don't you start with the four C's? Why don't you start with connection and competence and control um, and get into kind of how that's all going and think about, well, what's the kind of money context for those? And if there's any time left over, maybe you could talk big picture about the market. I'm pretty sure that if you start with what's most important to the client, they're never going to want to talk about what's going on in the market, because for the most part, it's irrelevant to what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. In your presentation today, you also said by far the biggest question that you get from advisors mm -hmm. is how do I define my value proposition? Yes. So how do you respond? Who is it that you want to be? It's not that providing 
um, investment services, building better portfolios. That, of course, that's important. It, it's sort of, but I would argue that it's necessary but not sufficient to build a robust, growing business, in no small part because technology in any industry, and including ours, it erodes margins. It makes competition that much harder. So, you know, in the era of Schwab and Vanguard and the many robo-advisors and all the technology that's available, if you want to charge a traditional price for services and products that have now been partially to entirely commoditized and are selling for basis points, you're going to have a big gap there where, you know, really any informed client is going to say, hey, it sounds like what you're doing is really good and really important, but why am I paying you X instead of one third of X? I, I think um, I think advisors need to have a good a good answer for that. I believe that the real value proposition for most advisors on a going forward basis is more in terms of helping clients define where they want to go, being a behavioral coach along the way so that they can stick with a plan uh, because many people do not. The advisor bolts or the client bolts when things get tough. So being a behavioral uh, advisor, being a behavioral coach, uh, helping clients be kind of organized and, and planned out properly, uh, that, that, that's worth a lot and it always will be no matter what the technology is. So now the big picture question on the relationship between money and happiness, yeah. uh, or to quote the idiom, the $64,000 question, yeah. does money buy happiness? Well, I have an elegant answer, which is yes, no, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, no in the sense that we have, well, let me start with, two forms of happiness because that's really important. So our brain is wired in a bunch of weird and funky and interesting ways. And the, uh, there, there's sort of two notions of happiness. I call it experienced happiness versus reflective happiness. Experienced happiness is what just you're feeling in the here and now. You roll out of bed, you're in a good mood, you're in a bad mood, and you, um, you can't really control or predict that and it kind of comes and goes. It's sort of who you are. Um, it's, it's, it's a sub or an unconscious uh, 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 neural dynamic. And then there's reflective happiness, which is sometimes I refer to it as the step back. You step back and you say, huh, am I leading a good life? Are things going okay? Am I going to be okay? Is my family go go going to be okay? That's actually effortful. That, that requires the brain to work harder. It's not something that we do all the time. It's, it's mentally exhausting. Now, the reason I bring up these two types of happiness is that money interacts with them very distinctly. When it comes to experience happiness, just sort of that day-to-day -day good mood, bad mood, money does not buy happiness beyond a, a middle-class income. So once you've been able to have a decent roof over your home and food on the table and your kids are um, you know, going to a decent school, beyond that, you can start making $100,000, a million dollars a year, $10 million a year, and it's, this has been studied very extensively. There, there's no lift in that experience happiness beyond 75 to uh, $100,000 a year income. Obviously, if you have to struggle for food and there's sustenance issues, more money will bring more happiness in that regard. The second issue is reflective happiness. There, money actually can buy happiness. It won't always, and what does that mean? Well, if we think about the four Cs, those various sources of contentment, and whether we can afford them, whether we can buy connection or control, or competence, it's a little of an awkward thought process, but you actually can. 
um, you can spend money wisely. You can spend money on experiences versus things. You could spend money on other people. It's been shown rigorously that being more charitable leads to a more meaningful existence. Um, you can spend money on time and convenience. So there's a variety of things that you can do where the more and more money you have, the more and more you can do for yourself and the people you love, the community that you cherish. Um, the, the hook is that you have to be deliberate about it um, because otherwise you're just going to be focused on that experienced happiness and you could be making $10 million a year and quite miserable. What's the connection between uh, money and sadness? The first major study of money and sadness was published in 2014. So we think about money and happiness for really centuries and millennia we've been thinking about this. But sadness and happiness are not the same uh, experience from a, from a neural point of view. And what this first big research study has shown is that money is actually very good at eliminating sadness. And why is that? Well, um, first of all, we're wired with this bias called loss aversion. So losses feel um, uh, much worse than gains feel pleasurable. And psychologists have, have, have studied this. So generally, uh, as creatures who want to survive in a big dangerous world, surviving and avoiding loss and avoid, avoiding pain and danger is actually more important to our emotional well-being than it is achieving or striving for, for, for that gold medal. And so the studies have shown uh, the first major study and, and then some follow-ups have shown that in all of the little elements of our day-to-day -day life, whether it be commuting to work or cooking dinner or um, uh, playing sports, going to church, you name it, more money is not associated with sort of more fulfilling experiences, but it is uh, in, in every one of those day-to-day -day, um, things uh, uh, associated with, with, with less sadness. And I think it's important for financial advisors and clients to think about that relationship because you can use money to avoid inconvenience. So I'm going to wrap up with a, a personal question. Yeah. I've heard you say that we're in the golden era of gaming. I know you <laughs> like board games. Yeah. What is your favorite board game and why? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I do love board games. Um, I, I do get, uh, I, I do get uh, kind of nerdy with it. I, you know, again, it's a social experience. I play with my kids or my friends, and there's so many great games uh, that are out there. I don't know what my favorite is right now, but I'll say that there's a new one out uh, called Keyforge that I've been playing a lot of lately. Um, I wouldn't begin to know how to explain it. It's really not a board game as much as it is a role-playing card game, but you have an army of creatures, and you're playing against somebody else who has an army of creatures. And I know this sounds totally strange and weird, but the game's super fun. <laughs> it's been a super fun conversation. Thanks so much, Brian, for yeah. joining us. Okay, thanks. Thank you to everyone for watching, or if you're accessing this as a podcast, thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe on iTunes, and if you like what you heard, leave us a rating or review. It helps others find the show. Thanks. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.